Nordstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. All right, good morning from my sunny studios in Fort Collins, but certainly not warm. We've had single-digit nights the last two nights. We have some great ice fishing opportunities that are really opening up and becoming available. I was out checking some ice. We're going to talk to some other people, so we'll we'll bring you up to speed on those as we get into the, the show. You know, we still have some great open water opportunities. It's going to get back up around 50 during the week. And uh, we've got a couple tremendous open water activities that'll last. They'll last at least the next two, three weeks in a couple parts of the state. And of course, Pueblo, you can almost fish open water year-round down there. And we have the the tailwaters of the rivers, which stay open year-round. So there's a lot of types of fishing. We're also going to talk a little waterfall and upland game. An opportunity in a part of the state you might not be the first one you think of. We're going to talk about the successful reintroduction of a predator to Colorado. And when I say that, everybody thinks wolves. We did talk about that last year, last week. But this is about a, a little predator that we all love, and uh, and it really does some things we kind of like. So that'll be kind of neat, too. And Chad Lachance, in addition to talking about catching stock trout, which are plentiful this time of the year. It's going to tell you how to cook them to make holiday treats. So we've got just a lot to cover. So let's go to the phones. Joining us, he's a Hall of Fame angler. You've seen him on television for years. Uh, most currently on his show, The Lake Commandos. He's an accomplished angler and a national champion ice fishing angler, Steve Panaz. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Terry. How's the weather up there, Minnesota? <laughs> I'm, I'm actually in a deer stand right now in central Wisconsin, and believe me, if I didn't have a heater, I wouldn't be in here right now. <laughs> you know, that's horrendous. dedication when you when you call this show from a deer stand. Yeah, if it's, I have to go, I'll let you know, but so far it's been a really slow morning. <laughs> Yeah, well, or that could be the fact that you don't have much confidence anyway, so I don't know. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, someday we could be friends. It just hasn't worked out to this point. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just glad to be in the woods. It's, uh, it's, it's snow on the ground. I'm uh, looking at a uh, bigger edge with some oaks on it, and, uh, yeah, I just... It, I just didn't expect it to be in the teens and uh, blowing about 25. <laughs> That's always fun, I know. Hey, we, uh, we're we in the second week of our Masters of Ice Fishing series, and we couldn't find anybody else, so I thought I'd have you on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. No, in all honesty, very accomplished. In fact, ice fishing, winning ice fishing tournaments and fishing internationally was actually one of the springboards to your career, wasn't it? It really was. I had a chance to fish in the uh, U.S. National Ice Championships a long time ago. And I'm actually watching a buck walk out right now, a little forkhorn. <laughs> and uh, really what uh, what's interesting about it is uh, there was a, a film crew from ESPN that was there taping it. And after it was over, after the interviews and things, uh, one of the event, 
um, we got talking about uh, his show, his partnerships and things like that. And, and uh, we ended up forming a, a, a relationship and a business relationship. And we ended up uh, airing on ESPN for several years uh, for North American Outdoors and uh, then North American Fisherman, North American Hunter, and, and the shooting sports foundation, or shooting sports. So, yeah, it was really a, a big time uh, thing that was pretty cool. You know, uh, you know, you and I both go back to when, and me more than you, because as old as you are, I'm even older. And, and we go back to when ice fishing was so different. Uh, you know, we started out when what was called the revolution of portable shelters and electronics and how we revolutionized ice fishing, how we took it out of sitting on a bucket, the dark ages of fishing and all the equipment. But things are... Uh, as much as those portable houses, those sled-type houses were terrific, we're seeing a trend back to the hub-type houses out on the ice. How do you feel about that? You know, I have to admit, I really think give hub, hub houses uh, a, a lot of credit when they first came out. They they were wind-prone and, and just not that easy to set up, and, and, and they weren't really uh, flexible. But I, I tell you what, now that I've had a chance to use them uh, in products like coming out from Otter, like the Vortex, where they have a, a full-size door to get in and out, I mean, it's absolutely uh, essential. Not everybody has room in a pickup truck for a big uh, sled-type house. Um, they're easy to carry. They're easy to set up. And I like the fact that some of them will fish as many as six or eight people in a row at the same time. And it really brings ice fishing back to what it uh, has always been, which is a community sport. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. When we first had the single popover houses, we kind of lost some of the camaraderie. I mean, if the weather was bad, especially where you had your house popped over. Um, and there's still a time and a place for those. I still have one, and I still fish out of it. But the hub houses, they kind of like, they tend to be set up there. Like you said, you can put them in a trunk of a car. People set them up, and they fish in the house, but then they venture out from the hub house, depending on the weather, and kind of spread out and do some fishing from there, wouldn't you? And they get to inter interact with each other, yet they still can cover a lot of water. Absolutely, especially if you put tip-ups out around the house and have you know, one, one hole per person in the house and then uh, lines outside. It's it's really a, a great way, and I like how mobile they are. I mean, it takes literally a minute to set up and a minute to take down, and, and uh, they weigh nothing, which is which is real nice. So, yeah, I, I mean, if anybody's looking for houses right now, I would seriously give hub houses a, a look because they're at a point now where they're just extremely well-built, well-designed, and, and they, they, they do a lot of things very, very well. And you mentioned the Otter. They make a really good hub house, don't they? Otter, you know, otters really impressed me. I, I set up one of my uh, sled houses here just the other day, and I pulled out the uh, the, the bolts for it, and they had Loctite on all the bolts, and they, they just think of everything. I, I was blown away that, that they would think of that level of detail and, and build a house at that high quality. And so, yeah, I'm uh, I'm a I'm a big fan of otter, and I really believe that uh, that both hub and and the uh, sled style houses are are uh, great choices for a lot of anglers. You know, another thing that just keeps transforming, and that's our electronics, how we approach it. Um, now, you can ice fish without electronics, and you can have some success, but we found out in the old flasher days that having electronics hugely increased your success. Now, between mapping and cameras and 
forward viewing sonar, we've taken electronics take a whole nother step. You kind of think that when people look at this, you have to put kind of what your strategy for electronics is going to be. Is that right? Well, one of the things I really like, and one of the things I think is not getting enough play in, uh, in ice fishing discussions is the importance of mapping. And a lot of those, the sonar that are out there now, you can get both the high quality flasher or traditional LCD type um, display, but you can also have mapping that has one foot increments in a lot of cases. And ice fishing more than anything, it's so hard to get on the spot on the spot. And one of the advantages of these high maps is you're going to find these little locations that most anglers just don't, can't see, can't find. And then if you combine it with, uh, say, a forward-facing sonar like a live scope or, or a camera, um, then you can really get on a spot on the spot. I'll tell you, Terry, last year I put a wheelhouse out on a lake that I live on, and I know the lake is extremely well, but what I did is I went out there with an auger, uh, a map, and a camera. And I spent two full hours going up and down a, a couple brake lines looking for an isolated piece of, of, of grass, and I found it. It was about half the size of a fish house. I, I found a ton of bluegills crappie on there, and I put the fish house on there, and I never left the whole season. And that's the first time in my life I put a fish house out and never moved it. And those are the types of things that you can look for that other anglers just don't take the time to look for or just don't know how the the knowledge to look for, and that's where the advantages are. You know, I had a similar story where Karen and I took a a GPS point off our boat on a lake where we knew there was a spot on the spot with a rock nearby, used a handheld GPS and GPS on my sonar, and went out and located that spot and set up. And while we were in an area of a large flat, there was a, just a little differentiating because of the rocks where we were. And people around us were catching maybe a fish every half hour. These were trout. We couldn't get our lures down to bottom. And we had these, a lot of these people were 15, 20, 30 feet away from us and all they were. And it was a totally different experience. But we had managed to locate that spot by scouting in the summer. That's a great plan. A lot of anglers will go out in the fall and, and look for schools of fish uh, just ahead of ice, out, ice up and, and be able to get back on those fish. But, you know, I, in the wheelhouse last year, I set up an Aquaview camera and I bought a off of Marketplace. I bought a 45-inch uh, TV screen for 50 bucks. <laughs> and, I, and I hooked up the, uh, the, the, uh, the camera to it. And you're exactly right. I mean, you really appreciate the difference between 5 and 10 and 15 feet when the fish aren't willing to move from that blade of grass to come over to a spot that's not in the grass or next to the grass. And it, uh, it's one of those situations where it doesn't sound like a big deal, but when you actually see it in practice, uh, it is a big deal. And if you're not right on the spot, and that's the advantage of, of having good maps, you can find that structure. And, it, and if you use a camera, a lot of times you can find that really that, that boulder on that, on that flat or that, that tree that's on the ground or something. But, yeah, it can make a big difference. The last thing I want to talk to you about, I find myself really adjusting the line I used. At one time when I was ice fishing, I used almost all monofilament because it was limp enough, but it had some characteristics none of us like. It tends to coil a little bit. It absorbs water, so it gets stiff, and it uh, it needs to be changed a lot. Then I went to braid, 
and use leaders on it. And I'm still doing some of that, but I know that you're doing this and I'm finding myself doing that this more. And that's going more and more to using fluorocarbon through the ice. Yeah, you know, mono is still a great line. In fact, it continues to get better and better, and it's very inexpensive. It's literally a few pennies per yard and, and things like that. The disadvantage of mono, is, especially in a little bit deeper water, is that you get a lot more stretch. You get about 25 28% stretch, depending on the, the line you're at. And what that does is reduces your sensitivity to getting, uh, when you get bit, and what happens a lot of times in the winter, these fish just slide up to the bait, and they suck that bait in, especially bluegills and crappies. And so the, the bite is very sensitive, and you have to have uh, good sensitivity. Now, braid is a great option because it has zero stretch, and, and, and the sensitivity is uh, amazing. The bad news is it floats, um, it's very visible, and it, and it could be a problem. But when you switch to fluorocarbon, you've got a, a line that's very dense. It actually sinks, so it brings your baits down, keeps your line uh, relatively tight, it stretches, but it stretches slower than mono, and and so what that does is it gives you good sensitivity and good hook setting, and it's really a, a great advantage. It's, I always thought braid was the best option for the deep crappies, the 35, 40, 45 feet of water, and I found myself actually going over to floral because it's actually a, a much more flexible line. Uh, it's it brings the small baits down, or I got great hook sets, great sensitivity. It's it's really been my go-to line in the winter now. And, you know, it's really abrasion resistance, too. It is. I mean, a lot of times if you hook a big pike or a big fish uh, and it starts sawing you around the edge of your hole, the advantage of fluoro is that it's it's got a great abrasion resistance. I'll never forget the first time I fished. Uh, the first generation of Berkeley Vanish uh, was in... Uh, I was actually fishing striped bass in uh, in uh, Maryland, and I had a fish take me around a bridge allotment, and I just assumed it was gone. And lo and behold, I was able to bring it back around the bridge abutment and actually caught it. And uh, that was the first time I saw uh, fluorocarbon is more than just a fishing line that does things similar to mono. It's uh, it's uh, nearly invisible underwater. It's uh, it's got great uh, abrasion resistance as well. By the way, my buck is still out there. <laughs> All right. Well, we got to go and let you get that buck. But people are wondering, when does your show start up again for the season? Where can they find it? Yeah, Lake Minnows, we're going to be airing uh, Q1. starts December 26th on uh, Outdoor Channel, the week of the 26th of December. And it's uh, Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings and a couple other times during the week. And uh, we've had a, well, a great uh, season this year. We've got some pretty big fish. And uh, some interesting bites. It was it was a really fun season to shoot this year. All right, my friend, you get go take care of that deer, and we'll talk again soon. Awesome. Thanks for having me. You bet, Steve Panaz. Always a great guest. Very knowledgeable, accomplished angler. He uh, and a good friend. He's one of the really good guys in the industry too. I just really appreciate him. We'll take a time out, and we come back. We're going to talk to you about a predator that's been successfully released in Colorado, and. One that you might kind of like on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors and 104.3 The Fan. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan, brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear. Jack's has a new store. Well, it's a store they already had, but they expanded it, and the amenities and the 
type of products they have in that store are going to amaze you. We're going to talk about that more later in the show. Let's go to the phones. And joining us from Colorado Parks and Wildlife is Tina Jackson. Good morning, Tina. Good morning, Terry. It's good to be with you. Always oh, good to have you on. You know, when you're coming on, I know we're going to talk about unique things. And everybody thinks of Colorado Parks and Wildlife managing the game animals in Colorado, whether it's elk or deer or upland game. Uh, they don't understand. You also have a lot of other duties that are actually your responsibility, both by state and federal law, and that's managing endangered species, predator species, all those types of things. And we've had a lot of publicity about one predator that's going to be reintroduced into Colorado, but we have another one that you introduced, you guys introduced uh, a while ago, and it's been quite successful, and that's one I don't think is going to be quite so controversial, is it? Yeah, yeah, you're right. We are responsible, us at Colorado Parks and Wildlife are responsible for all the wildlife that occurs in the state. So it's something like 900 species. I always forget the number, but um, I'm in our species conservation section. And yeah, we, we specifically work on non-game species and especially the, the threatened and endangered species. And since 2013, we've been reintroducing black-footed ferrets on the eastern side of the state, and they are they are an amazing little predator. Um, they rely a lot on prairie dog colonies, and um, there's some great videos online that you can see just kind of how impressive these little guys are. They really have an attitude, don't they? <laughs> they do. They do. They're in the mustelid family, so that's that's the family that. We all think of as weasels, but it also includes the wolverines and the badgers. And I always kind of think that, you know, there was some some family reunion of the mustelids years back, and and the ferrets had to keep up with those badgers and wolverines. And so, yeah, they have just an impressive little attitude. Yeah, they're not very big, but they're, they're they don't back down. But you know, that being said, they usually don't bother people. But you know, anything that predates on on prairie dogs, uh, it gives you a, a, does a couple things. Obviously, it's hard to control prairie dogs in the state, both because of regulations and just because of how uh, well they multiply and establish themselves. But it, it also um, gives you a, a natural way of maybe keeping them under check a little bit. And the the, um, the ferret, the black-footed ferret, really, really kind of fits into that. Now, they're protected, but in certain ways, where do you... How many of these have you put out in the wild, and and where are they located? Yeah, so the black-footed ferret is a federally listed endangered species. So it is listed under the Endangered Species Act. So all of our work is in cooperation with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, we actually receive ferrets from the Fish and Wildlife Service to put out on our sites. And we've had um, nine sites in the state, but eight sites over on the eastern um, plains. And they're everything from Larimer County. We've got um, ferrets out at the Rocky Mountain Arsenal. And then down in the southeast part of the state, we've been putting them on um, willing landowners, private landowners that that are interested in adding them into kind of the full complex of the grassland and, and prairie ecosystems they have on their properties. And we've put out no. since 2013, we've put out over 500, almost 525. Wow. And a number of these colonies are doing quite well, I understand. 
they're they're hanging in there. This is a it's a tough species to reintroduce. Any wildlife species is tough to to build back up from having gone extinct. And that's one thing about these guys that's really impressive is back in the seventies we actually thought they were gone. And then in nineteen eighty one they a population of them was found in Wyoming. And so every ferret we're releasing, every blackfooted ferret we're releasing out into the wild right now is descended from seven individuals. So, you know, we're, we're fighting against kind of a genetic bottleneck and trying to get them reintroduced on the, on the landscape. And so there, we have five sites in particular right now that are active and um, we have high hopes for, for all five of them. And, you know, and if people would be concerned about them leaving these sites and causing a nuisance, which they're not known to do, it's very rare, but they're only protected when they're in these sites. Is that right? Right. Yeah. For us to do this work, um, we had to jump through a lot of kind of bureaucratic hoops. And um, one of the things that's in place here in Colorado is what's called a safe harbor agreement. And so we actually identify which portion of the ranch that we're putting them on is within the conservation zone. And any ferrets that kind of leave that conservation zone um, are are really no longer protected under the Endangered Species Act. Um, So neighboring landowners can still go out and you know drive their ranch roads and people driving on the roads nearby don't have to worry about running one over it's it's a it's a great um a great option that's available under the endangered species act to try to work with some of these some of these species that um might be a little bit harder to deal with the ferrets are kind of a reclusive animal is there much viewing opportunity yeah, they they are they are a troublesome animal if you're trying to get out there and do surveys and see how many we have. Um, they're only active at night and they're very secretive. They're, you know, they they wear a little black mask and we always kind of talk of them as as the bandits on the prairie dog colonies. Um, and they're they're really tiny too. They're only about the size of a of a prairie dog. And so the best way to actually view these guys is get to one of our um, one of the live exhibits that are across the state so up if you're up on the north end of the front range um the fort collins museum of discovery has some live ferrets on exhibit rocky mountain arsenal here in the uh, metro area has some live ferrets and then down in colorado springs i believe the Cheyenne mountain zoo still has some on exhibit as well all right um it's just great to see these type of success stories and reintroducing animals that were natural here you know every every creature out there somehow contributes to the biosystem out there and i'm sure the ferrets are one is that right yeah yeah they are the the important things about putting ferrets out is it tells us that we've got a healthy prairie dog colony and a healthy prairie dog ecosystem and and those prairie dog colonies you know the the prairie dogs some people will tell you they're they're super cute i i think they're fun to watch but there are so many species that depend on them. And if we're able to put ferrets in, that's kind of just the, the cherry on top because we need such a healthy prairie dog colony to be able to do that. And yeah, it's amazing. We just did our, our last release of the fall earlier this week. And I've been involved in um, more releases than I can count at this point in time. And I still get goosebumps every time we open a cage and let these guys go. All right. Tina, we are out of time, but always great folks. I'll post information uh, it'll this will be on one of our podcasts and great to talk to you and thanks for all the work you do. Yeah, thank you, Terry. All right, Tina Jackson from Colorado Parks and Wildlife. We're going to take a timeout. <clears throat> when we come back, 
We're going to talk some upland game and some waterfall hunting, maybe in areas that you don't usually think about when you go on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear on 104.3 The Fan. When love's got you down and the world's crashing all around, Count on me. You're listening to Terry Nostrum Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear. That song, Count on Me, is uh, from the Wickstrom and Dobrith current uh, EP that's out there. So give us a search on social media or on your favorite streaming service and give us some feedback on our music. We always appreciate that. But let's get back to the outdoors. Let's go to the phone. Joining us from Southeast Colorado, he's a district wildlife manager there, Jared Lamb. Good morning, Jared. Good morning, Terry. How are you? You know, I'm doing good. And we're going to talk about a couple things that, you know, I, I know they exist, but I know that a lot of guys, when they're planning hunting trips, maybe it's because it's just a little farther to go, or maybe they don't understand the habitat down there, don't necessarily think about. And that's the shotgun hunting sports down in your part of the world. Let's start with waterfall. You actually have some really good waterfall opportunities, don't you? Yeah, Terry, we're kind of down here in this forgotten southeast part of the state. And uh, I'm sitting here talking at the end of my pickup. I'm watching several thousand snow geese fly over me right now. Um, so we, we have a pretty pretty good population, especially when we start getting migrating birds. Uh, we, we end up with a lot, a lot of snow geese. Um, a fair number of ducks end up down this way as well as a, a pretty good uh, slot of Canada geese as well. Now, the we'll get to the geese in a minute, but the ducks right now, everybody's hot on the ducks. Um, are the ducks in the reservoirs down there, or are they more in the like the Arkansas River or the backwaters? And what is the water situation for the ducks? Yeah, so we're kind of, in the southeast, we're in a pretty big drought, and so a lot of our reservoirs are, are shrinking in size pretty rapidly. Um Earlier in the season, our ducks kind of started hitting the reservoirs, and that's where people are finding success was on the reservoirs and small ponds. Um, but as we get later, and it's gotten a lot colder down here, we've gotten our first cold snap. Uh, a lot of the ducks are starting to hit the river, and that's really good for, for duck hunters uh, because a lot of our public access down here um, along the Arkansas River is actually on the river itself. And so as the birds move towards the river, um, the, the hunting opportunities really expand, and, and guys can find find some good success. I would think with this uh, cold weather, you're going to see a pretty big push of migratory birds. Is that what you what you're seeing? Yes, for sure. Um, our early season arrivals, uh, our teal and some of our gadwalls and uh, widgeons, stuff like that, have definitely pushed out. Um, and we still have a, a, a decent number of um, kind of the mid-sized ducks, but we're starting to get into our mallards. Um, and the Canada geese have really started to show up. Um, and so the migration is definitely in full swing, and uh, the hunting opportunities are tremendous. And you mentioned the snow geese, too. You know, a lot of times we don't talk about the snow geese till that conservation series uh, season opens after regular goose season, and they're coming back north. And the reason there is a special season with such ridiculous, is there a limit at all or almost no, it's a high limit. I, you, you can correct me on that, but... Um, the fact is there's so many snow geese, they're damaging the ecosystem, and they need to be thinned out. And if you're goose hunting and you can add the, the snow geese in, I think that's just a bonus. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
our snow goose hunting, um, it's definitely more popular in the spring, I'd say, just because it's kind of the only game in town. Um, but what it, a lot of people overlook is the fact that as the birds are coming down on their migration routes, um, they're a lot less weary of decoy spreads and stuff because they haven't seen as many and they haven't been hunted all, all fall and winter. Um, whereas when they're going up in the spring, they've been chased around for five or six months already, and they're they're pretty wary. So this, uh, I guess, regular goose season where we do have opportunities at snows actually gives some, some pretty good opportunity at decoying snow geese, and um, we, we have a, a fair amount of public access that, that gives the, the average hunter a, a chance to, to harvest some birds. Now, is there a limit on snow geese? I know, or it's liberal if there is. Yeah, it's a very liberal limit uh, in, in the fall season. You can harvest 50 birds a day. Um, and then when we get into our, our conservation season, yeah, it turns into an unlimited bag limit on, on snow geese. And, you know, get your other geese, but get take some of these snow geese. They're, they're great table fare. They're fun to hunt. You'll, a lot of times the numbers will just overwhelm you, and yet, and yet you're helping the habitat by reducing the population. So I, I just couldn't recommend more adding them to your, you know, what you want to hunt for in the fall. I want to move on real quick before we run out of time, and that's to talk about the um, upland game air opportunities in your area. And we talked on the phone earlier in the week. Now we know that. Upland game is going to be tough in Colorado. It has been the last few years because of drought. But you said there's some pretty good overlooked opportunities for pheasant and quail in your part of the state. Yeah, once again, we're uh, the forgotten southeast. Um, when you think of pheasant hunting and you think of quail hunting, uh, your mind automatically goes to the, the northeast. And in all reality, um, we have some great habitat that our biologists and our technicians have really worked hard on on both uh, wildlife area properties as well as private lands that we now um, have enrolled in the walk-in um, hunting program. And it gives, yeah, the, the pheasant hunting opportunity is definitely very good. Um, like you said, the drought has made it a little more difficult um, just because we, we haven't had the recruitment on the birds. But um, there's definitely there's definitely birds here. You just have to be willing to, willing to go get them. You told me that you think this year actually looks a little better than last year for the pheasants. Yeah, it's definitely a better year than last year. I'm not saying it's it's a tremendous year by any means, um, but it's it's definitely better than last year. Um, I know as I drive around working, um, I've, I've seen a fair fair bit more birds than I did last year, and they're already semi in, in big groups just because they're so habitat limited. So as a hunter, um, being able to, I guess, key in on those areas that you think pheasants are going to use and quail are going to use, uh, you have a pretty good chance of getting into some birds. I think it's the kind of year where if you're not seeing birds early in your hunt, you probably should move. It's not going to be where you're going to cover a big field over and over again, but you're going to maybe jump from spot to spot a little. Is that how you describe it? Yeah, I totally agree. I was talking to some hunters during this opener of pheasant season, and they they kept hitting the same spot, saying that there's been birds here historically. Um, and yeah, my recommendation is if you're not seeing seeing the birds, to to move on. Our we have a bunch of walk-in access, especially in the very southeast corner of the state, that um, it really offers some tremendous pheasant hunting. Um, but once again, it's walk-in, and um, those birds definitely figure out where the safe havens are and. Uh, the person that's able to go the extra mile definitely uh, has a good chance of getting into some pheasants. Yeah, it's it's going to be an interesting season, but it's still worth getting out there. It's worth the time for the hunt and maybe some areas that will introduce you to areas. How about the quail? 
Our quail, uh, they're not faring as well as the pheasants, um, but I will say we do have um, quail. Um, I think personally I'd probably end up in the southeast before I head to the, the north or the northeast. Um, we actually have opportunities at both scaled quail and bobwhite quail down here. And so kind of that mixed bag is, is kind of cool and um, just offers that additional um, opportunity for, for a hunter, an upland bird hunter. You know, an upland bird hunter, too, people like to get out early, but some of the late season can actually get better, especially if you get a little snow on the ground, the birds bunch up more, if you're more quiet. I think it can be a more successful time to hunt, actually. I totally agree, Terry. Um, and the other thing is that the lack of pressure. It seems like after that opening weekend down here, we see very, very few um, upland game bird hunters. So if you get a day, uh, you know, especially as we're getting colder, to, to sneak away and come down, I, I highly encourage you. And um, if we get a snow, then that's just the icing on top. Jared, we're out of time, but great information. I think it's just you got so much terrain down there, so much habitat. I know it's a little bit more of a drive, but, boy, it just sounds like it's worth it. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely, Terry. You have a great morning. You bet, Jared Lamb. I mean, there's some great, great hunting opportunities down there. You know, whether it's waterfall or upland game, the shotgunning sports, and you can hunt for a long time yet this year, so take advantage of that. We're going to take a time out, and we come back, we're going to talk Maybe about ice fishing coming up, but more about some incredible open water fishing that's going on right now on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear on 104.3 The Fan. Been a million places and I've known a million faces, but I've never Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Another Wickstrom and Dobrith song. They're everywhere. Go ahead and just Google Wickstrom and Dobrith and uh, listen to our music. By the way, we're big in Europe, I hear. Anyway, let's go to the phones. And joining us from the Blue Mesa area is Andy Cochran. Good morning, Andy. Hey, good morning, everybody. How are you doing? We're doing great. You know what, Andy? During the break, I got yelled at by my wife because she says, Quit playing with your pen. I can hear you tapping it on the desk. I'll bet as perfect as you are, your great wife never does anything to correct you. <laughs> Luckily, we have our wives to keep us in line. Thank you to Karen for keeping me under control down there. <laughs> She's going to hear that, and now you don't help her. Anyway, <laughs> Andy, you know, we've been talking a lot of ice fishing, and we'll be talking ice fishing with you this year. We may even look ahead before we're done with this segment. But right now, you've got great open water opportunities. I understand the boat ramps are still open. Yeah, you know what? Blue Mesa always seems to be a very overlooked fishery when we get into this November Thanksgiving time frame. And what's nice about that for us is you pretty much have the whole lake to yourself. But for everybody else, you are missing one of the best opportunities of the year to get down here and catch trophy fish. Um like say the Elk Creek boat ramp is open daily, 7 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. Um, and whatever species you want to catch right now, outside of probably kokanee salmon trolling, but the trout, and especially trophy trout fishing down here right now, this is the time to be here. Let's let's start out with the lake trout. Everybody thinks the lake trout, but I want to get to the other trout because the fishing is so good right now. At this time of the year, what's happening with your lake trout population? Most of our lake trout are finally in the spawn cycle now. 
Um, it takes a little longer on this lake because it takes a little longer for it to get to the right water temp. So we're finally in the mid-40s for a water temp out here. Those lake trout are really starting to move up and look around for some gravel points to spawn on. And you can you don't even have to have a boat down here this time of year to catch these things. They get very accessible from a lot of shoreline access points. And historically, some of the biggest lake trout we've caught over the years have been late November from the bank. So if you're looking to catch a big trophy lake trout, you've got about another week or 10 days to get down here, and you've got a great opportunity to do it. You know, when you talk about big trout, lake trout out of Blue Mesa, tell people what the biggest one to come out of there is. So our state record lake trout is from this lake, a little over 50 pounds, um, and it kicks out dozens of fish in the 30 to 40 pound range every year. So what's fun yeah, about you- this? What's fun about this spawn time too is, you know, the females are the real big fish, and what you also get to catch though in this spawn period is these males that are super aggressive. And a lot of times you'll see one big cruising female followed by seven or eight males that all average between 8 and 15 pounds. And you want to talk about a fun fish to catch. Those little, those teen-sized lake trout are some of the most powerful fish you'll ever hook into. Oh, it's just what an opportunity. I mean, people, you know, you're off in the corner of the state there, but this is an opportunity, folks. There's times of the year. Well, we talk about this all year long, but there's certain times of the year and different fish, it's different times of the year to catch big fish. Now, other than ice fishing, uh, spring and fall are tremendous for catching lake trout. They're just, they're the most accessible and it's one of the most fun fisheries you can, you can chase. And Blue Mesa is the king in Colorado. Now, we also, you're having just a tremendous rainbow bite. You told me this may be the best rainbow trout fishing you've ever seen up Blue Mesa. Yeah, we've been fishing this lake for over 20 years, and and never in our recollection have we seen a rainbow trout population as healthy as it is now. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of factors going into that, but bottom line is this lake is slowly turning into a trophy rainbow trout fishery, which it's never been known for in the past. But uh, the rainbows have that they've started putting in this system are resistant to the gill lice that we've been dealing with with our salmon and some of the rainbows for the last several years and now we've got a population out there of wild big healthy rainbow trout that are resistant to the gill lice and they're growing like crazy two and three pound fish pretty consistently all day long in every area of the lake right now and if you're looking for just steady action of really good quality rainbows this is definitely an up-and-coming lake for that, too, now. Now, both from shore and a boat for the rainbows also? Both, exactly. And that's another one, too, that the rainbows, because they love to cruise shallow water, the shoreline opportunity is pretty much year-round for those on this lake, yes. Now, any particular presentations you found that have been more effective, or is it just depending on the day and where you're finding the fish? Sure. So we can back up to that lake trout thing too. So as far as techniques and tactics, one of our favorite things to do is to throw 
either a glide bait or a big paddle-tailed swim bait in a rainbow trout color, and that'll and just go down the bank and cover a lot of water until you run into a, a pack of those spawning fish, and they'll, they're so aggressive that if they don't bite that big lure, they'll definitely chase it back to you and show themselves, and will follow that bite, bite with a rainbow-colored jerkbait or like a white tube jig, something a little bit smaller that they can grab a hold of easy. But a big swim bait's a great search bait for trying to find where these lake trout are spawning and get their activity level up. They're just so aggressive towards other fish that they'll show themselves real quick throwing a big swim bait, and then you can follow it up with something that they can get a hold of good. And as far as the rainbows go, um, we actually had a really good topwater bite for them a couple weeks ago when we had a late chrominid hatch going. We were actually able to throw some kind of bass-style topwaters. We were catching them with whopper ploppers and walking baits and poppers. Those rainbows get so aggressive feeding up to go into winter that you can almost catch them with any technique you want to try. Jigs, jerk baits, swim baits, sometimes topwaters. A fly rod's a really great tool. So that's one thing about the rainbow fishery, too. They're, they're so aggressive and eating, getting ready for winter that you can almost catch them any way you really want to try to catch them. So it's a, a fun way to practice a lot of different techniques, too. Now, you told me that you're going to probably have some good open water fishing there for a week, 10 days, maybe two weeks, and then you'll start seeing ice form on the shorelines. Um, ice fishermen are chomping at the bit because here on the front range, we're we got open water, obviously, but we've got cold weather and our mid-level lakes are starting to ice over. When and where would I go for the early ice opportunities on Blue Mesa? Um, so we'll we'll keep track on the, of the conditions and keep them current on our Facebook page. Just have everybody follow that if they want to keep an eye on the early, early ice conditions. We'll have reports every week, but historically... Around the 15th of December, we'll be able to get on to the upper end of this lake on the ice. Now, the big end where our big lake trout and stuff live, usually not till mm, like mid to late January for that stuff to freeze up down there. It takes so long to get this lake cooled down. But this upper end where it's a little more shallow, usually mid-December, we're off and running on the ice there. All right. And you talked about people going to your Facebook page. Tell people, you know, you've got so many great opportunities going on and coming up. Tell people how they would find you and locate you if they want information or to book a guide trip or you just want ask if you can help them out and locate the fish. Yeah, it's just at GSO Fishing on Facebook and Instagram. Um, we also have a closed Facebook group. If you get into that, we go through a lot more specific techniques we we interviewed nate Zelensky last week and got him on there talking about his tight line stuff so in our closed facebook group uh it's a great opportunity for people to get in there and just get a little more training on techniques and different things coming up and a lot of angler tactics it's a really cool group to be a part of and that's gso fishing correct yep all right andy we are running out of time but it just sounds like the opportunities there. Open water right now, 
uh, just phenomenal, and you're going to have a great ice season. So we'll keep getting reports from you and keep people appraised, but it sounds awesome. Thanks for joining us, Andy. All right, I appreciate your time. Have a great weekend. You bet. Andy Cochran. I don't think there's a nicer guy we get information from. He's just so honest and forthcoming, and he just tells it like it is. Speaking of nice guys, we're going to take a time out, and we come back, we're going to be joined by one of the regular guys here that's a pretty nice guy himself on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan.